our sins and rising from the dead to give us new life and a hope and a future to connect us with yourself and because we're now connected with you to connect us with one another as one church. And so God, as one church, we come together this morning to declare as we just have in song that you are our hope and our defense. You are what we look forward to and trust in most and you are the one from whom we seek what we need. We gather to declare, but also to be grounded in these truths. And we declare them because we believe in them, but we also pray this morning, Father, that we would experience them in new and powerful and very real ways. God, I can't help but think <clears throat> of just how much has been going on around our world in this past week. Uh, we heard about and even prayed about last Sunday, the uh, Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka, and how many people lost lives and how many survivors are now terrorized. Our hearts continue to break over that situation. And now hearing in this past week that many uh, Muslims who are in the minority in that country are now fearful for their own lives, having had nothing to do with those bombings, but now afraid of retributions that may be inflicted upon them. We see a world in that one nation where uh, fear and violence just continues to beget fear of more violence. And we recognize that that's not just constrained to Sri Lanka. That is the story of the world we live in so often. Um, reading about many of your uh, children, Christians, who have been continued to be attacked and even killed in places like Nigeria. <clears throat> God, even the synagogue shooting that took place in California this past week. God, this is a world that is in desperate need of, of hope and defense. And so, Father God, we pray that you would be our hope and defense. We pray, first of all, that you would, that you would change us in the midst of news like this, which seems far too common and Gosh, if, if we're anything like me, so often we just as soon tune it out because it gets very difficult to constantly be hit with the barrage of need in the world in which we live. But Father God, I pray that as your people here at Harvest, you would change us, that, that fear in our lives would give way to joy as our view of you grows, as we become fixated on the hope that we have in Christ and our defense, not only for our personal safety, but for our eternal destiny. And Father God, as these horrible tragedies remind us that this world is not our home and can never give us what we most long for, I pray that we would be a people whose hearts are deeply anchored in the resurrected and risen Savior. That we would not be blind or sort of Pollyannish about the reality of our world, but that we would remain hopeful because we have a greater hope. And Father God, from our own experience of that hope, I pray also that you would change people around us, people in Sri Lanka through the faithful witness of Christians in that nation, people in Nigeria, people in California, people in Oregon. Father God, would you change people as you did through the first disciples who went from a timid, fearful band of people in the wake of your death to a radically joyful people after your resurrection, joyful because they saw you alive and because they had received your Holy Spirit. And just as you reoriented their hearts to care most about the one thing that could never be taken away from them, and that made them people who live for you. I pray that you would accomplish the same purpose in us and that through that, Jesus, people all around this community would see that there is great hope, much greater hope than this world can offer in Christ because of how you manifest that hope in us. And so, Father, I pray that you would change us even now. Ground us in your truth as a people. Um, clear our thinking so that you are at the center of who we are. Increase our confidence in our eternal security. 
reorient the loves of our hearts. We offer hearts to you as your people and say, do with us what you will, that we would be a united people for your glory and that you would receive the praise and that many people would receive life as a result of that. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. And thank you guys for leading us. I appreciate um, you as a team leading us as you do every Sunday. We'll set this aside. You never know when that might come in handy. We'll see what happens there. Hey, actually, this is a vest some of you may recognize because you saw it on the backs of some guys, uh, some of whom are sitting out here right now, last Sunday, who were helping park people during our Easter service. Um, Just a few of many, many different volunteers that made our Easter services happen and happen really well last week. And I appreciate certainly the guys that were in our parking lot, uh, the men and women in our Sunday school classes and ushering. I mean, so many people, some of whom you saw, some of whom you didn't but they made our Easter services happen really effectively last week. And I wanted to just specifically mention one thing before we dive into opening up the Bible this morning. And um, that is the fact that many of us did actually park on a new piece of dirt and gravel that the church purchased. It was just this time last year, those of you that were here may remember this, that we were really talking about the fact that you know we've used this little strip of property just adjacent to ours for many years as overflow parking, and it was never ours, but we were allowed to use it, and, and now because the developer's bought the land and is going to build on it, it was kind of like, a, well, we're going to lose that, or we're going to buy it from them, and we thought, man, that's going to mean money, and um, do we have the vision as a church to purchase a piece of property that would allow us to actually fill our building here and have enough parking for all the people who showed up? Uh, because right now, if we fill the building, our parking lot won't hold all the cars. And we decided as a church about this time last year, yeah, we're going to do that. And we bought that piece of dirt over there, and we've been using it. You know, this past Sunday was the first kind of like real big test. That seems like too big a word. But it was kind of the first opportunity to say, hey, if we fill this building on an Easter Sunday, is there going to be enough room? And I'm happy to say last Sunday, the building was pretty full inside and we had like six parking places left over on the outside. Um, It was awesome (laughs) to see that, man, we as a church, even with something as tangible as enough places to park cars, in so many ways, we were ready for people who showed up on Easter. You were ready relationally. We were ready in terms of places to put people and their vehicles. So just thank you for that. Thank you for being a church that's forward-thinking enough to think something through, decide together, uh, to decide on it, to fund it, and to say, hey, we want to see this place full all the time, but that's going to happen we got to have places to put their cars because this is the suburbs. Nobody walks anywhere. You know what I mean? Um, I was just really appreciative of that and wanted you to be too. So good job, church. Well done. Let's continue to see what God has for us in store in the future. And we're actually going to pick up a discussion we started about a month ago. When we were following Jesus in John chapter 12 through the events of the last Easter week and then on Good Friday through his crucifixion and then last Sunday, a huge celebration of his resurrection and we were in John chapter 20 and let John walk us through how the disciples discovered their Lord was risen and we looked at the impact that that had on them and how radically that changed them. And we're actually gonna continue discussing that in the Bible as we look at the New Testament book of 1 John, uh, same author as the Gospel of John, but a completely different book that he wrote many, many years later, but he picks up on the themes that he had in his original Gospel, and he carries them forward. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn it to the New Testament book of 1 John. And while you're doing that, let me mention why this book is so important. It's because it it really helps us detect 
spiritual frauds, which exist. And they existed back in the first century when this was written. They still exist in the 20th century. Uh, Frauds are there. Con men have always been around. And nobody likes to be conned. There's, There's maybe no worse feeling in the world than to feel like you got taken by somebody uh, who kind of just pulled the wool over your eyes. Nobody likes that feeling. If you doubt that, just ask a lady named Missy Brandt. A middle-aged lady living in the Midwest. This is a true story that I'm going to give you a very summarized version of. In the spring of 2016, so just a couple of years ago, uh, she was trying to put her life back together uh, after a messy divorce and about with some alcoholism, and she was kind of starting to put a lot of that behind her and get her act together. Um, part of that was eventually she met a really good guy named Rich, and they started dating. He was about her age in a very similar season of life. Um, Rich was kind, he was caring, he was generous. Um, He was obviously pretty well off financially because every time they did something together, he insisted on paying for it. From dinners out to really nice restaurants that he would pay for everything. Um, Trips to really posh hotels, he took care of all the bills. Uh, Even a sunny Sunday afternoon out on his uh, brand new boat for her and her two pre-teenage daughters. Now, he was flawed, she noticed, and would recount later. Uh, He was a bit awkward at times, although it was easy to chalk that up to the fact that he'd been divorced himself and had not been dating for many years. Um, He was also sometimes unreliable. He was constantly canceling and rescheduling plans uh, that they made. He he needed regular rides to and from the hospital where he was receiving treatments for injuries that he had received in past military service from his younger years. As months went on, Missy described how she went hot and cold on the relationship Sometimes she really liked him. Sometimes she thought, this guy is not together. What am I doing with him? And every time she just thought about getting out of the relationship, something would happen that was credible and believable that pulled her back into it. And this went on for months. Well, to make a long story short, about seven or eight months into the relationship, um, spurred on by some nagging feeling that she couldn't quite put her finger on, that something wasn't right, she took advantage of an opportunity she had to look in his wallet when he wasn't around. And she discovered two things there that shocked her. First of all, when she opened Rich's wallet, she found his driver's license, which unmistakably had a picture of Rich on it, but a different name. The other thing she found was two credit cards in his wallet that were in the name of a woman that she did not know and had never heard of. It turns out Rich wasn't Rich at all. He was Derek And Derek was a career con man who had spent years defrauding women out of massive amounts of money. Missy goes on to describe how she Googled his name and was shocked to see multiple mugshots and articles pop up. She read every one of them. There she discovered that Derek had posed as a firefighter and scammed hospitals out of drugs. Derek had dated a woman in California under false pretenses and drained her bank and retirement accounts of almost $200,000. Derek had married a woman, pretended to pay the bills on their home, and then vanished once the house was foreclosed on because he never paid a cent. Derek had posed as a surgeon. He had checked into the posh St. Paul Hotel with a woman and her two daughters, racked up nearly $2,000 in hotel charges, and then skipped out on the bill and the woman. 
his most recent thing that got him in trouble with the law, not long before he had met Missy. As she eventually learned through some of these stories the identities of some of her other victims, she did something that's probably a little unusual. She began contacting them. And some of them all eventually became to believe each other and form a network of not only support, but also an effort to expose this guy and get him caught and punished. Of course, they were angry. Of course, they were hurt. But all of them also, and she speaks very honestly about this in the article that I read, they also experienced something else every single one of us would experience in their shoes, a deep sense of shame. How could I not have seen this? How could I let him pull the wool over my eyes? I was taken in. And of course, I can imagine you just look back then on months and months and months of warning signs you should have heeded, but there was always a good reason not to. And just beating themselves up. I'm so stupid. I'm smarter than this. What is wrong with me? Fraud and con men are a constant problem. And they're not just a danger in relationships. They're not just a danger in business and investing in financial matters. As it turns out, fraud and con men are a danger when it comes to our relationship with God as well. And friends, that's why the New Testament book of 1 John was written. It's because this is not a new problem, and yet it's a very serious problem. We're starting this morning a series through the book of 1 John that'll take us several uh, weeks um, into the early part of the summer. We'll take a couple breaks here and there to focus on some other things, but we're going to go through this book from start to finish. This is a book that encourages, sort of, um, kind of continues right on from the gospel of John, and and what we're going to do this morning is is just overview it, as we often do. We'll look at the first few verses, as well as jumping ahead and looking at a couple of other highlights, but the goal of this morning is just to going to be to take a big sweep of what this book is all about, and then we'll start diving into it in more detail starting next Sunday. Bottom line, here's what this book is about. We really have two basic points to the sermon this morning, two basic points from 1 John. This book equips us, on the one hand, to distinguish genuine Christianity from counterfeits. That's its major theme, its major purpose, to distinguish genuine Christianity from counterfeits, which then leads to confident joy in Christ. That's the stated purpose of the book. We'll see where here in just a couple minutes. Distinguishing between the real thing and counterfeits so that we can have confidence that leads to a joyful Christianity because I know my life is banked on the real thing. Now the interesting thing about those two points, the clarity on what the real gospel is and real Christianity looks like leads to confidence and joy, is that in our experience often that's not necessarily the case. Um, I think, this is arguable, this is debatable, but I think 1 John may be one of the most misunderstood books in the New Testament. It's part of why I'm excited to look at it. Not so much because it's like really difficult to figure out, unlike the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John was not like a real deep thinker in the sense, I mean, his thinking is fine. He's just not like really convoluted and complicated. It's not usually hard to figure out what he's trying to say. Rather, the reason I say it's, it's often misunderstood is that while this book was meant by its own admission to produce confidence in Christians, in their salvation, when people who are Christians read it still today, often it has the exact opposite effect on them. 
often it, it produces discouragement and shame. And so something is like, I, I, don't, I, I don't get what's going on here. And we're going to talk about maybe why that's the case. In, in general, I think at the highest level, the reason is because in its effort to accomplish the first purpose, to distinguish authentic Christianity from counterfeits, uh, the book of 1 John is famously, I might almost even say notoriously, binary. I mean, it's just like ones or zeros. It's on or off. It's black or it's white. And there's like no room in between in a lot of what it's saying. It insists, for example, that ongoing sin and a lack of tangible love for others invalidate a person's claim to be a Christian. Those are strong words. And they're not a preacher's interpretation. Like, they're right there in the Bible. And many Christians prefer to avoid this book altogether because, honestly, when we read it, we immediately see how we fail to measure up to that. It's ironic that a book which was written to increase the confidence of Christians often has the exact opposite effect. So in this series, we're going to try to look to it, why that's the case, and seek to understand the message of this book well enough that hopefully the Spirit of God can accomplish His intended purpose in us, that we will understand true Christianity from counterfeits, and that it will lead to great confidence and joy. I believe it can, and that's my prayer as we do it. This is kind of, I just put all my cards on the table. I'm just trying to like give you a reason to study First John, okay? <laughs> so before we just dive into the intro, this is my last pitch at trying to encourage you to engage with this book, and it's simply this. If you engage with this book in prayer and in study, I do believe you will come out the other end knowing how to distinguish Christianity from counterfeits and having your confidence and joy in Christ greatly enhanced. I believe that's not only really possible, I believe it's likely if we let God take us where he wants to take us and if we're willing to go with him on that journey. So with that having been said, let's just look at these two points briefly. John's written to bring clarity for the gospel and to produce confident joy from the gospel. Two things I wish I could say at the same time because they're like two wings of an airplane. You sort of need them both to fly, but my mouth can only make one point at a time. So we're gonna do the first one first and walk with me through it, if you will, and then we'll get to how this leads to confidence. First of all, the idea that, that 1 John was written to create clarity about what the gospel truly is. What, is the re, what does real Christianity look like? We saw this earlier when Jordan read the passage for us. He starts right away in verses 1 and 2 of the book, saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen with our eyes, and looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it. We testify it. And that's what we're proclaiming to you. Eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest in us. It's interesting. John jumps right in. This is not even a traditional letter like many of the other New Testament books. There's no introduction. There's no identification of the author or the recipients. He just dives in. This is almost more of a tract, as it were. It's a, it's a teaching tool that he wrote in the first century, clearly it, the intending it to be circulated around many churches, probably around the city of Ephesus, which we think is where he was when he was writing this. That's um, kind of the modern-day nation of Turkey, eastern Mediterranean. And, and he's going to write this so that churches will understand clearly how to anchor their faith in the real thing. He starts by taking us back to the beginning, just as the Gospel of John does. In fact, there are a great many connections between this book, 1 John, and the Gospel of John, not just the fact that they were written by the same guy. 
But what he's doing in this sort of tract is he's going back to the original gospel declaration, he's fleshing it out, and he's helping us as Christians anchor ourselves in the original message. For example, a lot of the language we just read echoes how the gospel of John opens. The very first words of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, goes all the way back to how the gospel of John opens up. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John is saying, I, I want to take you back to the, the original gospel that you heard, but he isn't ultimately even just meaning the original gospel that I and the other people who were Jesus' disciples got to see, like, like when Jesus came and explained the gospel to us. He's saying, actually, the beginning I'm taking you back to is the beginning, the beginning, like the Genesis 1 beginning, like the in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth beginning, like that beginning, the beginning before there was anything, there was God, and there was his message, and his message, it turns out, isn't an it, his message is a he, it's God the Son, who actually came and, and, and told us who he is, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. His point is that this is not something man-made, <laughs> like I didn't make this up, Paul didn't make this up. David didn't make this up. Moses didn't make this up. Abraham didn't make this up. The message I'm taking you back to is God's message from before there even was a world to give a message to. This is rock solid stuff. And he says that this is a message in verse one concerning the word of life. That again goes back to John chapter one, verse four. In him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. We want to know where life comes from? It comes from God. This is who he was from the beginning. Real life is in God's revealed word, which turns out is a he, not an it. It's a person, God himself in human flesh. And lastly, there's this emphasis on, on the seeing and the hearing. Uh, that we've, we've seen with our eyes and looked on, we've, we've touched with our hands and we've heard concerning the word of life. Again, a reflection of John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is from the only begotten of the Father. Jesus was seen, he was heard, he was touched by his disciples, he was made manifest, the truth in heaven became a tangible reality and a person who explained to them the path of life. There's also an unmistakable connection here with what we saw last Sunday in John chapter 20 where the disciples, uh, John's account of the disciples discovering that Jesus who had died was now risen. And when Mary and then later the group of disciples and lastly Thomas get to see him and hear and to touch the risen Jesus thereby verifying through their own firsthand experience the truth of his resurrection. He's going back to all of that. We saw and heard God Almighty telling us what life is in person. And then he died and rose to provide the path to life for us. That is the message that he opens the book calling his reader's attention back to. Why? Why is it so essential and important to go back to the beginning and to know for sure that my faith is grounded on what was original? And the answer is pretty clear. It's because from very early on, authentic Christianity had to compete with counterfeits counterfeits, credible voices claimed um, and spread conflicting messages about who Jesus was and how a relationship with God works. And the problem is they were all credible. 
Uh, you get a hint of this if you jump down to chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they, referring to some of these people spreading these um, false gospels, they went out from us, but they were not of us. You see, that's the problem. A lot of the folks that were running around as early as within a few years of the resurrection of Jesus and the establishment of the church. And they were running around and saying, no, this is what Jesus really believes and this is how you connect with God. The problem is they originally were hanging out with the apostles and the disciples. They, they were actually quoting the Bible. They were talking about what really had happened back in Jerusalem when that Jesus guy died and, and what the gospel was really all about. And because they had come from that group, they were credible, they were believable. At a time where all we had to know what God's message was is the written Old Testament and then the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and those who had learned from them. So these credible guys were spreading ideas about God and Jesus and the gospel that were not true. He says, we got to know that we are going back to what God has originally said. By the way, this issue of credible um, people spreading different ideas about God's message is still a very live one today. And we're going to see this over and over again throughout this series. Let me just give us one little example of it today. This is just a, a tiny tip of the iceberg kind of thing, but I think it illustrates the point. Uh, in just a second, I'm going to put up two different quotes from two different guys who both, at first blush, have very similar and very impressive credentials. Both of the guys you're about to see the quotes from are pastors of, like, massive megawatt megachurches. Like, I mean, like 10,000 people or more attend the services every weekend of these guys. Like, just a little bigger than us. <laughs> They're also both from Texas, which follows, right? Because that's the only place in America you find churches that big. These are like megawatt Texas megachurch pastors. They're both multi-published authors. Uh, they both are sought-after speakers, and through radio and internet and TV, they are voices that are sought after by, I mean, who knows, hundreds of thousands at least of people look to these guys through their books and through their teaching um, programming to, to try to figure out who, who is God and, and how do I relate to him? But their messages are not the same. Look at these two quotes. The first one is from a pastor named Matt Chandler. He said not long ago at a conference, the Bible, this is a summary, but his point is here. The Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus. The other is named Joel Osteen from his book. He says, among other things, quote, God wants us to have healthy, positive self-images, to see ourselves as priceless treasures. Now, in this short time and short space, I don't have the room to put the context of the quotes in. I guess I'm just asking you to trust me that I've quoted them in context. If you don't believe me, go look at their stuff yourself. But the point is that, that both of these quotes are pretty solidly representative of the main messages of these two guys, their main understanding of what the message of the Bible is when you open it up and read it. And we've essentially got one guy saying, you know, at the end of the day, the Bible is about how great Jesus is. That's what God wants us to understand. And the other guy saying, you know, at the end of the day, the Bible is about how great you are. That's what God wants you to understand. They can't both be right. But it's, if you don't know any better, it's easy to see them as both equally influential. Now, they're not both right. One of them's right and one of them's wrong. I'm not going to stand here today and just tell you who's right and who's wrong. I will give you a hint. One of them's wrong, and it's not Matt Chandler. <laughs> I know you have to think about that subtle hint for a little while. 
It'll take a while to figure out. <laughs> Man, the point is there are so many different views of who God is, and some of them come from influential places. How do I know that that's true? Am I just picking my favorites? That's, you know, you start getting into this he said, he said thing, and then everybody just accuses everybody else of, well, you just don't want, you know, whatever. Are there any standards by which we can decide who's true? The book of First John gives us three. This is the core of, of the book's message. Um, and I'm just going to say these really quickly and resist the strong temptation to unpack them because we're going to be unpacking them over the next several weeks together. But here's really the three core points of the book. How do I know that I'm believing the true, authentic gospel, that I'm really following God the way that he wants me to? First John gives us three ways to know that our Christianity is genuine. First, it's true to the original. It's true to the original. And we've actually already seen that even in the introduction of the book. Like you go back to the beginning and you compare the message. That takes work, but, but it's doable. It's possible for every Christian to be able to understand the original message well enough to compare it to the messages that we're hearing and reading today. Much more to say about that as the book goes on. But he also provides two others. And these are the impacts of a true gospel. He's going to repeatedly hit these themes. The second one is that genuine Christianity produces a lifestyle of increasing obedience to Christ. It actually produces a lifestyle of increasing obedience to Christ or increasing holiness, kind of two different ways of saying much the same thing. Look, for example, down briefly, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Whoever says... I know him, that is, I know God, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. See the black and white, the binary? There's not a lot of wiggle room there. And the truth is not in him. But the one who keeps his word, ah, in him, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we abide, that we are in him. The true gospel produces a lifestyle of increasing obedience to Christ, not necessarily sinlessness, but a marked and clearly observable sinninglessness. We'll get to that in two weeks. I need to stop for the sake of time. Second thing, it produces a life of obedience to Christ. Thirdly, the true gospel, um, constantly repeated theme, produces a lifestyle of active, tangible love for other Christians active, tangible love for other Christians. One clear example of this, if you jump over to chapter 4 and look at verses 7 and 8. Some of the better known verses in the book of 1 John, actually. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Again, you see the binary? but the logic is inescapable. God is holy, or he is light, one of John's favorite terms. So therefore, if God is in me, which is what happens when you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in you, so it's the life of God now lives out of the life of me if I'm really a Christian, and if God is light and there's no light coming out of me, then I probably don't have God in me. That's the logic. God is love. If there's no love coming out of me, then I probably don't have God. I can know that I'm banking on the real deal when I actually see the life of God coming out of me. So John, uh, 1 John gives us three ways of dis- differentiating the true gospel from counterfeits. It's true to the original, produces obedience to Christ, and it leads to love. Question, how do you hear these verses? 
How do you, how do you hear them? What, what impact do they have on you when you first read them? Are they exhilarating and motivating? Are they heavy and convicting and discouraging? Are they a blessed, wonderful, crazy, messy mix of all of the above and something else too? This is where the other wing of the plane comes in. Because while he's talking about being clear on what real Christianity is, he expects, he he very clearly seems to expect that these clarifications will lead his readers to experience life-transforming joy just like he and the other disciples did. That's what we see back to the introduction, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That's what we see in these next couple of verses. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Do you realize what he's saying there? He says, I, as, as, as an apostle, one of Jesus' original disciples, somebody who saw him and, and ate with him and walked with him and talked with him and learned from him, somebody who saw him resurrected from the dead, who actually got to see him and hear him and verify his resurrection with my own eyes, and that totally changed my life, such that I went from this timid guy who was afraid of the authorities and what they might take from me to just a few weeks later, I am boldly proclaiming Christ because I realize I've got something they could never take away from me that is worth far more than what they could take away from me. I've got eternal life, which is worth far more than this temporal life. So what have I to fear? Total transformation. And he's like, isn't it cool that I got to experience all that? Actually, that's not what he says. What he says is, Guys, I'm writing this so that you will have the exact same experience that I did. That that these wouldn't be stories of super Christians who did amazing things for Jesus, but I could never do anything like that. He's like, why not? There's no super Christians here. There's only a super God. And when you come into contact with him, it changes your life. And that's why I'm writing to you so that you too will have fellowship with us. That word means having things in common. I mean, here's one of the apostles literally saying, the relationship that we have with God as his apostles, you can share in too. There's no difference. There's no difference. And we write so that our joy may be complete. In fact, he says, it's cool that God has changed our lives. But we will be most completely joyful when we see God changing other people's lives through us. We want you to join in because in sharing the goodness of God that we have found with you, our enjoyment of God's goodness becomes complete. So he fully expects that his readers will have the same experience of confident joy that he and the other disciples did. This isn't something that's just for them. It's for every Christian. He makes that point very clear and probably the most succinct purpose statement of the book. Clear at the end, chapter 5, verse 13. As he's beginning to conclude the book, and we'll get here in a few weeks, but let me just point this out now. 1 John 5, 13. He just tells us what his goal is in writing. I write these things to you who believe, Christians, in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, isn't that interesting? He calls them Christians. You guys that already believe in the Son of God. So by his theology, they already have eternal life. But he says, I want you to know it. I want you to not just be confident 
uh, or clear on, on the gospel that you've committed yourself to, but I want you to experience the confidence that comes from that. I want you to know that you have eternal life in such a way that it reorients your loves and reshapes your life. He expects that Christians who read this book will gain tremendous confidence in our salvation. In fact, his tone to his readers is, is never a rebuke in this book, which is really interesting. It's always pastoral, caring, you might even say tender. So we've kind of moved over to the second point now. He's, he's brought clarity to the gospel, but now he wants us to have confidence in the gospel of Jesus. How does that work? Uh, so many times he uses phrases like, uh, my little children, chapter 2, verse 1. That's what he calls the Christians that are reading this. He's like, he's like you're like my, my spiritual kids, I love you. I care for you. He uses that language over and over again. Um, verse 18 of chapter 2, verse 12 of chapter 2, and on and on and on. He keeps going to this. I'm writing to you little children. He's like, I'm a, I'm a father to you. There's this tender care, and there's a sense of connection to who they are. Like He believes in them. He loves them. He calls them beloved. Chapter 2, verse 7. He just flat out says it. You are my beloved. You are people whom I love. Chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 7, over and over and over again, we see that language, beloved, beloved, I love you, you're like my kids. He's got a very tender tone toward them. And he's also, as we've already seen, completely confident that they are actually real, genuine Christians. Uh, For example, he says in chapter 2, verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. Like, he's convinced that his readers are actually, like, his readers aren't the frauds. (laughs) He thinks they're genuine Christians. And again, as chapter 3 opens up, he says these things. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. He says, I'm looking at all of you guys who are reading this, and I'm assuming all of you, or at least the vast majority of you, are actually genuine Christians. And so he's not writing this binary clarity thing because he thinks a lot of them are not saved they're not really christians he's actually convinced they are and his tone is very gentle there are times in the new testament when writers kind of adopt a rebuking tone with their readers Um, one thinks of the apostle paul writing the corinthian letters or even the letter to the galatians you foolish galatians who has bewitched you you know okay, okay, man, you know, and he's, he's, in Corinthians, he's like apologizing, he's like, I'm sorry, I have to be so harsh with you, but man, I just got to call you out, and that's not the book of 1 John. He's not rebuking his readers for not having their acts together, but we often don't read 1 John that way. It's common for us to read self-condemnation when we see the extent of our remaining sin and our lovelessness. Like we read a self-rebuke in the text that isn't necessarily there. Why is that? Well, again, this sort of famously black and white binary thing I think produces that. I want to suggest maybe a couple reasons why that may be the case and then we'll kind of land the plane this morning seeing how this book is going to help us deal with our own reactions to it. Um, why might we read self-condemnation when that's not necessarily the author's stated intent? I can think of at least two reasons. There's probably more. First, one reason may be because there really is a conviction of sin going on in my life. 
And that's the Spirit of God bringing that to my attention. I mean, it's possible that I may be somebody who thinks of himself or herself as a Christian, but I've not actually banked my life on the real gospel. And as, as a book like First John just pushes everything into the black and white and makes it really clear, it becomes more and more evident to me that the, the, the religion I'm living, the Christianity I'm living, might not be the real deal. And that is an uncomfortable process, to say the least. It's like having the blankets just ripped off the bed on a cold winter morning. Ha <laughs> ha! And all of a sudden, I'm exposed to the cold. This lady whose story I told at the beginning, Missy, I can't imagine what she must have felt like after she Googled those first news articles and started reading through them. Very likely, there's this, like, this morbid curiosity, like, I don't want to read this, and yet I can't put it down, Right? I have to know the truth, but it's rocking my world. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. Of course, it can be the most important thing that happens to us in the long run. And so if that's where we're at, I encourage us to continue to walk toward the process. Because if God is clarifying what real Jesus following looks like for you, it'll change your life for the good. So maybe one reason that I tend to read self-condemnation in there is, is perhaps this is shining the light on the fact that my ideas about Jesus aren't all right. <laughs> and there's that sense of like shame and frustration, but he's like, hey, let me just teach you who I am. On the other hand, that's not necessarily true of all of us. For many of us, I think I am genuinely banking my life on Jesus, but like a lot of us, I just have a natural bent toward self-condemnation and self-shame. You know what I'm talking about, right? I think we all do. I think we experience it differently based on your whatever background, your personality. But I mean, it's a pretty normal thing for all of us to feel like, you know, you see somebody else do something really amazing or achieve or accomplish something good. And part of you is like, hey, good for you. And then immediately there's this other part that says like, oh, have I ever done anything that good? Could I ever accomplish what they accomplished? Am I as pretty as her? Am I as smart as him? Do I have as good a job as they do or whatever? And then there's this immediate like, oh, I don't measure up. Like at the same, like, where did that come from? It's really hard to rejoice with somebody who rejoices, you know, when I'm just so frustrated about the fact that I don't think I've done what they do. I don't measure up to them well. There's this immediate comparison thing. Like I wish I could say as a pastor, I was immune to that. A couple of years ago, I had a sabbatical. I got to go visit lots of other churches. Um, all of them were churches where I knew the pastors personally, and so I trusted their teaching. And, you know, like, I, fortunately, I was successful in this, but I have to admit, like, every Sunday, I had to mentally go in there and say, I'm not here to critique him because <laughs> I'm not preaching today. I'm going to get preached to. They say doctors are the worst patients. I don't know if that's true, but I can tell you pastors are sometimes pretty bad listeners when it comes to other sermons. Um, and I'm like, I'm not here to critique him. And actually, you know what? I had to think about it long enough to say, I'm not even really here to learn anything from how they do church. Although that was cool. It was cool to go to a lot of other churches and see how different guys do things and got a lot of great ideas from that. You know what? That, that can't be where my heart is at. I'm not here to find out some things that they do better than me or point out some things that I think they do worse. That's not the point of me going to church. I am here to listen to the word of God preached and to open myself up to what the Holy Spirit has to teach me. It's not about them and it's not about me. As I say, by God's grace, I think I was able to get there most of the time, but I had to actively prepare myself for that because there's this immediate reflex that says, I want to compare. And how do I measure up? And if that's where we're at, then what do I do every time I learn a truth from the Bible? There's the truth, and what do I do? I immediately say, am I meeting it or not? And I feel great about myself if I am and bad about myself if I'm not. 
that leads down a road of self-condemnation where I just kind of either wallow in my unworthiness before God and there's no confidence or joy there, which may explain why some of us find a book like 1 John challenging. Or maybe it just leads us to avoid that altogether. If I can just go read other books, there's a lot of other stuff in the Bible, you know? You can just sort of sidestep this book and focus on the encouraging things and not really worry about it too much. But of course, both of those are unhealthy extremes. I think, and we'll, we'll close with this, I think First John helps save us from these two unhealthy extremes. Because he kind of comes in a little bit like a traffic cop, parking lot, guider, what do you call those people? Attendant? <laughs> you know, like one of these construction guys, he's got the vest, he's out there, you're driving down the street, and you're going to go down that road, and he's like, nope, road closed, detour, come on, got to go that way. <laughs> you don't want to go down that road. It's full of pits. We're, we're digging it out. We're rebuilding it. You got to go around. You go around, you'll be fine. And he's giving us all of this truth. And we're like, I immediately want to go down this road of compare or shame or self-justification because I think I'm doing well. Either way, it's kind of this pride-shame road in a weird way that's sort of like two sides of the same coin. And first John just stops and he says, whoop, stop, whistle. I need a whistle. Just blows the whistle. And he's like, don the vest. Don't go down there. You don't go down that road. Here's the road you go down. And the book constantly points us in another direction. It points us to Christ himself. I'll go one more verse from this book. Chapter 2, verse 1. Oh, we'll get here in a couple weeks, but I'll just mention this. Little children, I am writing, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Meaning the righteous one. I'm writing this thing to you so that you will be righteous, but you're not perfectly righteous because we know there's only one righteous one. It's Jesus Christ. So rather than going to a puddle about how righteous I'm not, he's just like, nope, nope, go over there. And you turn around, you look down that road, you say, what's over there? There's Jesus, the righteous one, my advocate. And I suddenly start to realize that when I repented and became a Christian, that's not just something I did way in my past one time to become a Christian, although that's true. That's something I do every moment of every day, repenting of sin, coming back to the righteous one, begging for God to fill me with his spirit and make me more righteous, not because I'm a better person. I'm not gonna go work on my righteousness. I'm gonna go ask the righteous spirit of God to fill me and change me. And then the next day, I go right back to the foot of the cross and ask the same thing and the same thing. He says it again in chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, not only to forgive them, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an inside thing. The minute I realize I don't measure up to this Christianity and I say, oh my goodness, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I need to dwell in guilt and shame, he stops, he says, nope, go that way. What do you need to do with that unrighteousness? You know where you need to go with it, Matt. You need to get it cleansed. And you go back to the cross over and over again. This book is going to train us to think in gospel terms and to live that out, to daily depend on the greatness of God and daily invite the Holy Spirit into our lives to make us who he wants us to be. First John equips us to distinguish genuine Christianity from counterfeits so that we can have the joy and confidence that comes from our salvation. And we need both. <laughs> we need both.
Let's dive into this book. Let's let our minds be cleared of other ideas about God, whatever they may be, and focus in on the true gospel on a daily basis that we could increasingly have the habit of relying on him, being cleansed by him, filled with his spirit, and then see that work out in our lives and say, God is in me by his grace. I know where I'm headed. As we enter a time of communion right now, that's what we're gonna celebrate this morning as we come to the communion table. Communion is the Bible's declared way of, of having us celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I want to ask the worship team to come on up here. They're going to lead us in a moment. As they're doing that, let me just mention what's going on here. If you're not familiar with um, communion of the Lord,